All Rise, the Ashley Murphy murder trial with Frank Graney, a News Talk original podcast. Joseph Pushka has been found guilty of the murder of Ashleen Murphy. She was 23 and a school teacher. She was killed while out exercising along a canal path. The defendant of Lanali Grove, Muckley County Offaly, was mostly unmoved in the dock and had his head down as the verdict was delivered before the Central Criminal Court. Mr Justice Tony Hunt said he agreed with the jury's decision and is glad they didn't waste any more time with what he described as Pushka's nonsense. The judicial process cannot bring our darling Ashling back, but we are relieved that this verdict delivers justice. It is simply imperative that this vicious monster can never harm another woman again. On the afternoon of the 12th of January last year, Ashley Murphy, a 23-year-old primary school teacher, was killed while exercising along the banks of the Grand Canal in Tullamore. And yesterday, Josef Pushka was found guilty of her murder. I'm Frank Graney, Courts Correspondent for News Talk. And I'm Ashley Moore, Radio Producer. And I'm delighted to say that we're joined today by two good friends of mine and colleagues who also covered every minute of the Ashley Murphy murder trial. Hi, I'm Deborah Naylor, Courts Correspondent with Virgin Media News. I'm Owen Reynolds, uh, Courts Reporter with Courts News Ireland. And this evening, we're going to bring you a comprehensive account of what the jurors didn't hear during this trial. And now that Josef Pushka has been convicted, we can speak freely about our thoughts on the evidence. This is All Rise, the Ashling Murphy murder trial. Welcome to episode 19, What the Jury Didn't Hear. So in this episode, we're going to get to talk about the hearing that took place before the trial got underway. This is the pre-trial hearing, which went on for about two weeks and it allowed the court to rule on legal disputes between the sides before a jury was sworn in. Strict reporting restrictions apply to those arguments. But now that the work of the jury is complete, we are free to talk about them as well as the other issues that were dealt with in the absence of the jury throughout the trial. Let's start with that uh, pre-trial hearing, I think. Firstly, Frank, are these types of hearings common in criminal trials? And then maybe let's talk about what was in dispute between those parties. Um, Well, firstly, I suppose they're not uncommon, but they were only introduced as part of the trial process maybe last year. So they are quite a recent feature when it comes to the trial process. And they... I suppose the aim of them is to speed up the trial when a jury is eventually sworn in because in the past, as the, as the guys well know, um, there would often be a legal issue that crops up and a jury would be excused while that is thrashed out in their absence. More often than not, it's an issue with a piece of evidence. You may have the defence um, trying to have it um, thrown out and the prosecution would be arguing the case as to why it should go to the jury. And obviously that conversation needs to be held in the absence of the jury. But obviously in the past, when there's a lot of legal argument and it can go on for days, and in this case weeks, you know, it's not ideal to have a jury out for that long. So these pre-trial hearings were introduced as a means of, I suppose, ensuring a more efficient running of the trial when a jury is sworn in. And that was certainly the case here because, you know, we had a little bit of legal argument throughout the trial, but most of the work was done before the jury was sworn in. And that definitely made for a smoother process for uh, all involved. And I suppose in relation to some of the issues that were at dispute in Mm. that pre-trial hearing, um, you had the CCTV evidence, the admissibility of certain clips in relation to that, the narrative around uh, some of the clips, because you may remember 
the Garda who I am, who I, I, I felt quite sorry for you to go through over 25,000 hours of CCTV footage as, as part of his role in the job. He spent three months working on the CCTV compilation alone. He's based down in Tullamore Garda Station. His name is Garda Shane Harney. Uh, he distilled all of that uh, footage. And then when he played it for the jurors, you may remember he was giving a, a bit of a narrative in relation to certain clips. Mm. There were a few issues in relation to some of the narratives uh, about that. There was also issues with the evidence in relation to the admission that Yosef Pushka made in the hospital. There were issues in relation to his arrest, detention, uh, inference evidence, lots of bits and, bits and pieces that were dealt with before um, the court got underway. And and, and Owen is probably the best man to talk about this because I spent the first week covering this pre-trial and then I was moved to another trial. Mm. But Owen had the unenviable task of sitting there day in, day out for all of that legal argument. Yeah, well, the main reason I sat through all of that legal, legal argument actually was because I had this concern that <clears throat> uh, Joseph Pusco was going to lose every single one of those arguments. And at the end of it, uh, realising that all this information was going to go to the jury, this overwhelming evidence, he was just going to plead guilty. Um, but in the end, what happened was all of that information did go to the jury. Uh, the, ju- the judge didn't really rule out very much at all. He he wouldn't allow the Garda who had prepared the CCTV evidence to give a long narrative about exactly what that contained. That was the main thing that was ruled out. But the CCTV evidence itself still went before the jury. It was just left up to the jury to decide what does this actually show rather than the guard trying to tell them bit by bit exactly what it's what they were seeing. And to be honest with you, it was pretty self-explanatory anyway. Mm. And it was pointed out to the jury, for instance, that the prosecution were alleging that one that some of the clips showed Joseph Puska following two women around Tullamore. And that was obviously important because it showed a kind of an, an MO that he had on that day that he was following women and he was trying to isolate them. And in those two instances, one of those women ended up... Um, going into a Tesco so he seemed to abandon that and then the other one she noticed that she was being followed and she looked back and she kind of got out of the way and it seems that that was the point when he thought well I, I won't follow this one anymore and he headed off down towards the canal so anyway all of that information it did go before the jury and they had some explanation of what it was without maybe the minute detail that the guard had had having watched this so many times over as Frank said three months where he did literally nothing else that was his entire job and then he said for even for the full year that was still something that pre- that occupied much of his time over that period. So, you know, all that stuff did go to the jury, but yet he still pleaded not guilty uh, despite all that overwhelming evidence. Were you convinced sitting in there at pre-trial, this isn't going to go to trial? I wasn't ever convinced, um, but it was a concern because it did seem really overwhelming, especially because even in those pre-trial hearings, they didn't go through all the evidence in the case. But Anne-Marie Lawler, the senior counsel for the prosecution, she did outline it at the very beginning, what the evidence was. And I remember her saying that the, that Joseph Puska's DNA was found under Ashling's fingernails. And at that point, I thought, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. Why are we wasting our time? The only way that a jury might not find this guy guilty is if that evidence is not put before the jury. But of course, there was no way that that was ever going to be um, prevented from going before the jury. What about then during the trial itself? Was there two points where there was legal argument during the trial? The one that stands out for me, and, and again, because a lot of the issues were dealt with before the jury was sworn in, there weren't actually that many days taken up with legal argument. Um, and, and also, as the case with like so many other trials where, you know, there might be an interesting piece of evidence that wasn't allowed to go to the jury and then you can talk about it uh, afterwards. That wasn't the case here. As Owen said, like, 
you know, the majority of it, the lion's share of the evidence went to the jury in the end. Um, but I do remember at the very end of the trial, when the defence were calling their expert witness, uh, Dr. Johan Grundeling, um, who raised concerns about the fact that Josef Pushka um, hadn't been assessed by his doctors before the guy they interviewed him. And this is where he made the admission in hospital. And at the 11th hour, um, he sent an email to Mr. Bowman. And this was late the night before he was due to give his evidence. And this was, he just thought that it might be worth noting, having gone through Mr. Pushka's um, records from the hospital, um, that there was an issue with his liver. And that as a result, then, when it came to the painkiller oxycodone and the half-life of that drug, um, that perhaps the effects would have been stronger than what Professor Ryan said. So you may remember the prosecution's witness, Professor Michael Ryan, an expert, an internationally acclaimed expert in areas of toxicology and pharmacology. And he said at the time that uh, Josef Pushka made these admissions to Gardaí, which he claimed he couldn't remember because of the meds that he was on and other, other factors. But at the time, Professor Ryan said that at a maximum, he would have only had about 8.25 milligrams of, of the drug and potentially a lot less, but he was taking a conservative uh, approach. Um, and that wouldn't have been enough in Professor Ryan's professional opinion to affect his state of mind or his mood or his behaviour. It certainly wouldn't have been enough to prompt a murder confession if he had nothing to do with it. Um, but maybe that's for later in the podcast. Um, but specifically in relation to that, Dr. Grundling then, the night before he's due to give his evidence, he goes, hold on a second, there was an issue with his liver. Uh, that could have affected it. And that was argued at length, um, you know, and in the end... Um, the judge decided that it was far too late to be trying to introduce that particular evidence. Um, Ms Lawler, the prosecuting barrister, was particularly animated about it. She thought it was completely unacceptable that this was being brought to the table uh, at the 11th hour. And in the end, the judge decided that no, that that wouldn't go to the jury. That's interesting. So even during a trial, sometimes evidence comes to light and then it's debated whether or not that that is part of the trial. That Does that happen often? Well, in talking about evidence coming to light, um, what really sticks out for me is actually the strength of the prosecution opening the case. And it was a really detailed opening that we heard from um, prosecution counsel Anne-Marie Lawler when she was taking effectively what is giving the jury a roadmap of what the prosecution case is. And that's all it is at the end of the day. It's a, a roadmap of what they're going to present in the trial. And we heard about the the confession in hospital. We heard about the DNA evidence, the CCTV evidence um, and detailed and all as that was. I remember thinking at the end of the day and I think a few people probably said it, what is Josef Pushka's defence? And we had absolutely no idea what he was going to, what he was going to say. And that was something that actually only emerged during the trial. We never heard it before, which was really, when you think about it, quite extraordinary. And it was in that that day that um, that Jenna Stack, who was you know an eyewitness at the scene and one of the first witnesses to give evidence in the trial, um, when it was put to her that you know maybe in fact what she saw when she saw a man crouching over Ashleen Murphy and she obviously gave that really detailed explanation that was really difficult I think mm. evidence very visceral evidence to hear in court and I think that was potentially one of the most difficult days of evidence for the family to listen to because you could really get a sense of she came across what was effectively the, the middle of this attack and it was it was absolutely horrifying to hear but it was put to her well maybe what she witnessed was actually Yosef Pushka trying to help Ashley Murphy and that was the very first time that we heard that mm. and obviously it was only 
uh, much later in the trial when when he took the stand and when he testified that I think, you know, I think even the this. judge um, couldn't believe what he had heard and this was something as you say that Michael Bowman had put to Jenna Stack in this uh, cross-examination of her that you know perhaps you saw my client helping her and it was almost dropped in quite casually yeah. in a way. He said, these are my instructions. And you almost had to go, did I actually hear that correctly? You know? Yeah. And, yeah, was... and, and in, in fairness to Mr. Bowman, that's what Yosef Pushka would have told him. And he has an obligation then to put that to uh, the witness. But I do remember uh, Mr. Justice Tony Hunt. I don't know if either of you guys picked up on it, but he was uh, somewhat taken aback. And it was almost like he, he, he felt like he hadn't quite heard uh, the question. So he, he, went, he went back to Michael Bowman again, didn't he? And he said, you know, are, they, are those your instructions? This is new to me. He was. He, he seemed somewhat surprised. He he said he he definitely said to Michael Bowman, um, "Are you accept something along the lines of Are you accepting that your client was there? Mm. You know, um, is that an, is that now accepted?" And Michael Bowman kind of palmed it off, at least for the moment. He said, "Look, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that." And the judge tried to push it. Said, "No, we'll come back to that." But it was obvious at that point that that is what mm. what was and being alleged. He was accepting. He was there, and he was going to make some new story as to what. And that often happens in trials as much and all as you do have pre-trial hearings and everything else and you think all these issues are hashed out before matters go to a jury. Actually, a trial can end up heading in, in almost a very different direction. Um, and I think this was this was a huge moment in this trial because, you know, we'd heard about his lies, um, you know, and what the prosecution said. He lied to Gardaí before during the investigation. But then... Um, he took the stand and would spin uh, what Anne-Marie Lawler would later say were, you know, contemptible lies to basically try and say, it was quite galling really, really? to try and say that he was trying to save her life um, given all the evidence that the jury had already heard. I really want to come back to that about him taking the stand because I think when I heard from you, Frank, that that was on the cards, I I thought I was shocked. I was really surprised, but we'll come back to that in a second. The other um, slight disruption that we had to the kind of otherwise quite seamless proceedings for the last four weeks was what we, the first speed bump, as the judge mm. called it. Mm. Now, some people might be aware of what's come out in the last maybe 12 or 24 hours about that, but um, this was an issue, a personal issue that Josef Pushka had in prison. We could probably talk a little bit about that now that we couldn't at the time. Yeah, and, and I am conscious, I mean, you know, Josef Pushka is now a, a convicted murderer mm-hmm. and I have certain opinions about the man, but he does also have five children. So I'm I'm conscious of that. And the jury wasn't told this um, at the time. Uh, all they were told was that there was an issue that the trial couldn't proceed on that particular day. It was the only day where we had a full adjournment. Um, a sick note was handed to the judge and, and subsequently it emerged that um, while at Cloverhill Prison, where he'd been on remand while he was on at trial that there had been um, an attempt at suicide, um, that prison officers intervened very quickly. I, I don't know the exact ins and outs and I don't think we need to go into any detail and bearing in mind again that the man yep. has five kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but that did happen. Um, the prison officers intervened very quickly um, and they, the court didn't sit that day. They did sit the following day and Mr. Pushka was back in court. And soon afterwards was in the witness box uh, giving his his evidence and the judge just made some comments, um, you know, without knowing the full details of what had happened to him. In fairness, Mr. Justice Hunt, he didn't know. All he knew was that a sick note had been presented from the prison service. Um, but he said that essentially that if Mr. Pushka wanted to go into evidence and if he wanted the trial to go on, that he had to make himself available to the court. 
Um, and he did that. He was back and um, he gave his his evidence then soon soon afterwards. But yes, I suppose that was um, the first speed mm. bump, as you say. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about then after there was the legal argument and for most of the trial, everything ran smoothly. And, and that opening day, Anne-Marie Lawler, when she set out her case, Owen, what did you think about her opening statement? And obviously having sat through the pre-trial hearing and now he has pleaded not guilty, which I think it's safe to say would have surprised a lot of people who had maybe sat through it. Um, what did you think about her opening statement? Well, I was really glad that our opening statement contained so much detail because it gave us a lot to write about and it really did um, lay down this really stark amount of evidence against Joseph Puskett. There was the DNA under her fingernails, the fact that his bicycle was found right beside her body and they were able to link that bicycle to him very easily because his his fingerprint was on it, his DNA was on it. Um, There was the stalking of women that day was also mentioned although maybe it wasn't put in those terms but following women earlier on on the same day she mentioned all these things which meant that obviously you know you're able to put all that out there and it means that the jury then is aware of exactly what it is that they're going to be seeing and so as they go through the evidence they're able to understand exactly why various things various clips on CCTV for instance or um, you know scientists from Forensic Science Ireland why they're being brought in and why the information that they're giving is important but um, yeah it just it, it laid it out in stark terms and it did seem at that stage again just very difficult to understand why there was even a trial going ahead but that 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 was what was happening Yeah You mentioned Deborah um, Jenna Stack a few minutes ago and she was one of the first then witnesses to give evidence what were your thoughts about her, was it hours on the stand? I, I was kind of unsure about how long these things took when Frank and I were recording in the evenings, but her experience on the stand and how she gave that evidence, what were your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I did think it was one of the most kind of harrowing days actually mm. in the trial just to, to listen, um, you know, to her describing how she set out uh, with her friend Eva Marin that day to go for a run um, that you know the two women. Um, well, it was it was Jenna who who saw who ended up coming across. Um, first of all, she saw the bike. She was on the side closest to the ditch. She mm. said, you know, just describing in detail how you know they suddenly heard these sounds, and she looked down and she saw this man, um, a man crouching over someone, and it was just the detail that she gave in court. You know, she said that the man had gritted teeth and she said it was absolutely terrifying. The man we now know to be Yosef Pushka turned around and told her to get away. But it was really the description of Ashleen Murphy struggling that was so difficult to listen to. Um, and, you know, that description of her really kicking and just trying to to save her life. And as we heard later in the post-mortem evidence, um, one of the 11 stab wounds actually went through her voice box. So I think you could just really get a sense then that that was the moment she wasn't able to speak at that point. But as Jenna Stack described, uh, she was kicking her legs like she was crying out for help. So she was doing everything she could to save herself. And as Anne-Marie Lawler would put it in the closing, um, you know, she... she her Joseph Pus- Joseph Pushka's DNA was found underneath her fingernails because she was trying to save herself and she desperately did everything she could to save herself. So I thought just that was 
It was a really important day of evidence in the case. I think that eyewitness testimony and that is, of course, despite the fact that Ms. Stack would later um, pick out someone else in an ID parade. But I still think she was she was a very convincing witness um, in the level of detail that she went into and in just yeah. describing what she saw that day. She painted a picture and I think for anybody who heard Jenna's evidence, we could all imagine what happened. It was like you were seeing it through her mm-hmm. eyes and that really, that day I remember I found that episode quite difficult actually even when we were doing it Frank because I felt like I she has done Ashling the best service by ex- explaining everything that she saw and well, it was up to the jury to decide what they believed and what they didn't believe but Jenna put us on the canal. She was she really excellent. Um, it, was, it was like being there and watching her giving her evidence like incredibly difficult thing yeah. to do. Mm-hmm. And she was reliving that experience too. And that kind of, you know, gets lost in things as well. She wasn't just giving evidence. She was reliving a traumatic experience. And that was definitely very um, difficult evidence for um, Ashley's family to hear. You know, her last moments, how, and she was a fighter, um, you know, by, by all accounts, you know, on the football, on the hurling field as a kid, like, you know, you hear that she was a, she was, she was tough and she was kicking out and she was fighting out. And, you know, I just found that, I, I found that particularly difficult. I think to, you were uh, left with a lot of what ifs. Yeah. yeah. Listening to that evidence because you just thought if someone else, you know, if, if they had come across this scene a little earlier, if someone else had, if just, you know, if things had panned out a little differently and minutes here and minutes there, yeah. could Ashleen's life have been saved? And and knowing that, also knowing that there was absolutely no connection between her and Yosef Pushka. So mm. she was just randomly, you know, unfortunately randomly selected on, on the day she met her death. Yeah. And knowing that and everything else around the case, you just thought if circumstances had been a little different, you were just listening to that evidence thinking, God, her family just must be thinking, you know, things, perhaps her life could have been saved mm-hmm. and, and they'll you know never the re- know that. You know what the really hard thing listening to that evidence was that you knew how it ended. Um, yeah. I found mm-hmm. that particularly difficult. So like listening to how she fought back and she did, she fought hard and, and just knowing, um, you know, how it ended, I, I found that hard. And, and then obviously the defence called into question her evidence on the back of that mistake mm-hmm. that she made in relation to the ID parade where she picked out a suspect. It, it wasn't Josef Pushka. He wasn't in that ID parade. It was a man who had nothing to do with what happened to Ashling Murphy. And as a result of that mistake, and, you know, this was, she reckoned that when she saw this man, Josef Pushka, attacking Ashling in the hedgerow, it, it was less than a minute, possibly 30 yeah. seconds, I think she said in her evidence. That, that is, you know, a traumatic experience and then she's expected to be able to draw from that memory the following day and facial recognition is very difficult anyway people often make mistakes there is law around that. it are there statistics around how accurate humanity generally is when it comes to seeing so, six or eight people who look similar so i'm not i'm not aware of statistics specifically but i know that um every court now in this country and i think in most countries around the world warn juries that you cannot convict someone based on an identification like that because we're so bad at it. People are generally so bad at it. Even juries are warned where somebody says, okay, this is a person that I know and I know well in my life and that's the person that I saw committing the crime. 
even in those instances, juries are not allowed to rely on that because people are so bad at actually rec- even recognizing people that they know. So if it's like Frank says, thirty seconds in an extremely traumatic situation, you get you you, you know you're pick- you're not really picking out all the fine details. Mm-hmm. You're looking at the overall picture, and I think that's really important with Jenna Stack's evidence because although she picked the wrong guy out of that lineup. The thing that she didn't get wrong and the thing that the jury presumably accepted in this was that she understood what was happening here, that that mm-hmm. Ashling Murphy was not being helped by this person. This person was attacking her and she was fighting for her life to get rid of him. And that that sense that she had, she was not mistaken in that. And I think it's obvious she wasn't mistaken in that. She was mistaken in the identification, but that's really easy to happen. And it just, it just shows that really... Um, you know, those ID parades are probably just a bad idea generally. And, and I think Anne-Marie Lawler did a brilliant um, job in her closing speech when she was dealing with Jenna Stack's um, evidence because she didn't shy away from the fact that Jenna Stack got it wrong, that she made that mistake. Mm. Nor did Jenna Stack when she was asked about it in, in, in her evidence. But what Anne-Marie Lawler said to the jury um, before they went out to begin their deliberations in her closing speech and she said, look, you can look at Jenna Stack's uh, evidence and yes, she made a mistake, but does that mean you have to bin everything else? And we don't know how they arrived at their decision. Clearly, we weren't privy to their deliberations, but you would like to think that they looked at Jenna Stack's evidence and said, yes, she made a mistake, but this is an act, a very, very good account of what she saw that day mm. um, and listening to her. And, and, and that's why I suppose we have jury trials and that's why... You know, you have witnesses in the box in person so that jurors can look them in the eye to see if they're they're believable. And Jenna Stack certainly was. Yeah. Because she described, she said, when it was put to her under cross-examination, well, maybe it was, maybe he was trying to help her. She said, no, I, I know, as only yeah. said, I know exactly what I saw and this woman was in distress. She was in distress. So, and if he was trying to help her, surely he would have called out and asked her yeah. for help. That's, that that's was, key too, because, yeah. um, you know, that, that was one of the things that put the lie to everything he said is, if you are trying to help this woman, the first thing you're doing is you're shouting help, help. Yeah. You're looking yeah. for some someone else to come along, make a phone call, someone who, you know, who can help. I think he tried to say, he tried to claim that instead of saying get away, that he said, okay, okay. And it just held, it, it didn't hold any water. No. No. no, no, The other witness who really stood out to me was Anne-Marie Kelly. She seemed to be another woman who was... A key would she would you would you rate her as one of the key witnesses in this trial? Yeah, I think mm-hmm. because she establishes that he had an MO that Joseph Puska had an MO that day, that he was trying to follow and isolate women. The defense case looking at the CCTV, and this was something that was mentioned during the pre-trial hearings, was that um this isn't evidence of a man following women. This is just a, this is just a guy cycling his bicycle and there happened to be women close by. And if the, the first woman that uh, the prosecution said he was following, she w- wasn't even aware of him. She was walking to Tesco. She didn't look behind her and she didn't know this guy was following her. So um, it would have been easier for the defence to say, well, that's all he was doing. He was just cycling around. Nobody even noticed him because he wasn't really doing anything to be noticed. But Anne-Marie Kelly was absolutely sure that he was following her and she noticed it and she took action to kind of get him get away from him um, and she she then had him stare at her and she felt intimidated by that stare as he cycled by her and then of course she encountered him again down at the canal and she felt um, uncomfortable and awkward enough in his presence that she decided she was just going to run past him keep her her, her eyes down, don't engage with him and just keep going and get away from there and that's what she did. And that evidence is compelling because it does show that he was trying to isolate women. And, and also relevant as well and, and, and the judge just um, 
when he was making his ruling as to whether or not those clips would go to the jury, he said it's relevant all day, every day and twice on Sunday. So he was in he was in no doubt about the relevance of um, of Ms. Kelly's evidence. She was a brilliant witness. She was described uh, by the prosecutor as a compelling witness. And as you say, you know, actually, one of the things that I found most impressive of her about her evidence was the fact that she hadn't been shown the CCTV footage in advance where other witnesses like Beata yes, Borowska, she hadn't that. been shown the CCTV yeah. footage. So she was asked to recount her movements, where she went that day. Um, and this was, you know, what, 21, 22 months ago, um, the best part of two years ago. And she was able to recount in extraordinary mm. detail um, her movements, where she saw Josef Pushka that day. Clearly, she didn't know who he was at the time, but she certainly felt like she was being followed and she certainly felt that she was being stared at in an intimidating way. I thought her evidence was brilliant. And when the CCTV footage uh, was shown back to her again, bar one or two aspects of her evidence that didn't stack up a hundred percent she was very very accurate in her account of what happened it's remarkable like the, her antennae were up that day for whatever reason yeah her antennae and were up and she she got a sense and as the prosecution will put a closing the trial you know um I think the defense had said okay maybe they conceded I think Mr Bowman conceded at one point even if he was following women mm. that day that did not mean that he had a predatory murderous intent but what the prosecution said it would showed a pattern of behavior consistent with someone who would later isolate a lone female and attack her so it is just I think when you looked at all of the evidence together, it's like, well, how many coincidences can, you know, can one handle in this case before saying that's a coincidence too many? And and also just by looking at the footage without any sort of a narrative and without any sort of context, the way he cycled his bike, um, particularly in those clips with Anne-Marie Kelly, and I don't know if, if either of you uh, picked up on this, but what I noticed at one point in, in the clip and she's out and she's walking briskly with her dog. She was out, she was exercising. She was walking with her dog and she turns a corner and up until that point, Josef Pushka had been cycling very slowly behind her, almost keeping a distance. Mm-hmm. This was early on. And then she takes that corner and you see him speed up. He, he pedals very fast to, to catch up with her. Um, he was most certainly following her. And from what I could see of the footage in relation to Beata Borowska, who said that she wasn't uh, aware that she was being followed. Same thing. She was being followed up until a point where she went into Tesco and then he gave up and went back. And that's when... He followed Anne-Marie Kelly. But looking at the footage, there was no doubt in my mind that he was following both of those women. And speaking of motive, we've, we've all mentioned here his MO and he was this kind of predatory-like <coughs> behaviour that he was exhibiting that day. There's been a little bit of commentary in some of the media today about an alternative motive. But Frank, you and I spoke about this a bit earlier. The only suggestion that came up during this trial was that his intent was murder. Was there any other intent referenced during the trial as to what else he had intended to do that day. I, I've seen some of the reported today. I've heard some of the rumours in relation to motive. I'll say two things about motive. Firstly, a jury doesn't need to consider itself with motive when it comes to murder uh, in this country. It's none of their concern. Sometimes if there is a motive, it's put to the jury, but it's it's not enough to secure a conviction. In relation to the reason that Josef Pushka brutally murdered Ashley Murphy uh, that afternoon. Um, We simply don't know. We don't know why he did what he did. He was described by um, Ashley's brother as a monster. And I think that's as good a reason as any. 
there was no suggestion of any other motive other than he intended to kill or at the very least cause her serious harm that day. And that's why the jury returned their guilty verdict. And just in relation to like Chinese whispers and rumours and things like that, you know, I, re- I remember when, um, you know, I, I think everybody does remember. It's one of those moments. I, I remember when news broke about what had happened yeah. to Ashling along the Grand Canal in, in Tullamore and that enormous outpouring of grief and people were scared. Anger. Absolute anger. outrage, yeah. All of those things. And also what started to happen was the rumour mill mm-hmm. started to churn and I just try and ignore all of that as best I can. There were lots of stuff put out there about all sorts of things and I don't think it's helpful to go into any of it today. Save to say that there is no doubt um that Yosef Pushka and Ashley Murphy did not know each other. There was no connection between them whatsoever, no link, and the jury was told that as well. Mm. Um, you know, because rumours, certainly when it comes to um, a criminal trial like this, have have no place. And, you know, I've seen some of the reportage as well when it comes to motive and things like that. None of that was articulated in, in court. And I think on that very issue and um, agreeing exactly what with what Frank has said there, you know, the, in terms of speculation, that's absolutely no place in, in any criminal trial. Perhaps it's the most, I think it might have been the most difficult thing for anyone who was, and there were so many people who followed this trial so closely, to get their heads around. They're like, but why did he do it? And you're like, we never heard anything. And it's likely no one will ever know why he did it unless he decides to tell someone Yeah, there's only one, one person day. that knows and, and, and he's, he's still, you know, and exactly. And he has denied that he has committed murder. But as one senior investigator, you know, put it to me, the only mystery left in this case at this point in time is what his true intentions were. Right. And that is likely just never to be known. Um, and you could say, does that make things more difficult for the family? Perhaps. But then as as I heard someone else say last night, I mean, for the family who have who have lost Ashley in the most brutal circumstances, like is for them the why that important? We don't know, you know, and and, and we won't be able to say that because we're we're luckily not in their shoes. Yeah. yeah. There's. I, I want to ask you a question a moment before we leave the, talking about the evidence. But the other element that we've all mentioned so far is the DNA evidence. When you heard that, Owen, did you think that's a big moment that there's DNA? linking Josef Pushka to Ashling. Yeah, the thing to remember about DNA evidence, of course, is that it doesn't come time-stamped, right? So it has to be viewed in conjunction with all the other evidence in the case before you can actually make it, draw any conclusions from it. But obviously, in this case, there's absolutely no connection between these two people prior to roughly three o'clock, half three on that afternoon. It couldn't possibly have been. So yeah, absolutely. His, his DNA being underneath her fingernails is an pretty much insurmountable piece of evidence uh, for him to get around because he, especially in circumstances where he goes into a Garda station four days, uh, sorry, six days after this murder and when the guards ask him, do you know Ashley Murphy? Have you ever seen before? He says, no, I've never seen this girl before in my life. They show him a photograph of her and he says, that photograph is the first time I've ever seen this mm. person. That's what your, if your DNA is underneath that person's fingernails and they're dead in that you know in that ditch in those circumstances and you're saying you've never seen this person before it's very very hard to get beyond Mm. that and a jury looking at that I mean there was a lot of evidence in this case but that alone for a jury would have probably been enough to convict him the the fact that the DNA is there and the fact that he's denying he's ever seen this person before in his life. 
And of course, later changing that story to say that there was this encounter, but, you know, they've already, they, you know, they heard the transcript of his guard, their interviews, they heard those lies, um, you know, and I think they, they obviously then it was up to them whether or not to, to believe his story when he testified and, and they didn't. Yeah. yeah, so for me, there's actually, there's really two tranches of evidence in this trial that are both equally important, but they prove two very different things. The first thing is proving that Joseph Puska was at the scene and that's the DNA evidence, his bicycle, uh, the CCTV footage, the eyewitness footage, Jenna Stack's description of the person she saw in the bush, which is obviously a very good description of Joseph Puska. So all those things prove that he was there in that uh, with with Ashling at the moment that she died. But the second thing then was disproving the story that he then decides to tell to the court. And the thing that really nails that and disproves that story, I mean, you could already say perhaps that it's or, this story is so fantastical. Actually, I'll just tell it just because mm-hmm. it's worth reminding yeah. people what it is. His story is that he was cycling along the canal, uh, minding his own business, getting a bit of exercise, Uh, when some man he did not know who was wearing a COVID mask and dressed in black started shouting at him, uh, saying things to him in English that he didn't understand. This man pushed him off his bike. He fell on the ground. He said the man sat on him, stabbed him three times in the stomach. Ashling just wandered into this, um, said something to this man and he turned his attentions on her. And Joseph described then the two of them going into the bush and he said that he saw this man stabbing Ashling, inflicting those injuries, and then the man ran away and seems to have disappeared in a puff of smoke because Jenna Stack and Aoife Marin, who are coming from the same direction that he ran in, they they didn't see anyone running away with a COVID mask and a knife in their hand. So anyway, that's the story that he tells. He then claims that he went to try and help Ashling. He pulled the scarf up over the cut in her neck or the, the injuries to her neck realized that he couldn't do anything. He said, I didn't have any power to do anything. You know, I'm not I'm not medically trained, I think was, he said at one point. So uh, instead of staying there to help her or to find help, he crawls through the bushes and goes into a field and falls asleep for a few hours. So this is the story that he tells. And that has to be disproved by the prosecution. And it does have to be disproved because in any criminal trial, um, where the defence puts up a defence, if it is reasonably possible that that defence is true, then the jury has to accept it as being true. And um, that's the way our criminal system works because the prosecution has to prove everything to the point of beyond a reasonable doubt. So if there's an alternative story that's reasonably possibly true, then um, the jury would have to acquit. Now, you might say, listening to that story, that it's not reasonably possibly true. I don't know, but maybe there are some people out there who would go, you know what, maybe there's a little, maybe there's a possibility that this COVID-compliant killer, as as, uh, Mm -hmm. Anne-Marie Lawler put it. So he was given, uh, when he was in a Garda station on the 19th of of January um, being questioned, his very final interview, the Garda use a special provision under uh, the 1984 Criminal Justice Act, which allows them to put certain things to to a suspect. And if the person doesn't account, give an account uh, in response to those questions, a jury can hear, first of all, that they've refused to answer and can draw adverse inferences against the person based on that. Now, it's an, um, that's an unusual thing because usually everyone has a right to silence and where a person exercises their right to silence, a jury doesn't get to hear about it and isn't allowed to draw any adverse inference from that. But the 1984 Act allows for that. And he was asked a number of things. There's no point in going into most of them. There's only one thing that really stands out and is important, which is that he was asked, is there anything you want you can tell us now? Any fact that you might rely on later on in court that you could tell us now that's calling out to be to be said? Um, if there is, 
tell us now. This is your opportunity. This is your chance to say it. And if you don't say it now, a jury will be able to draw an adverse inference against you later on. That adverse inference obviously being that you're lying, uh, lying to the jury. And he said, I don't want to comment. I'm not commenting on that. And he was given at least three opportunities by the guards. Mm-hmm. Come clean. Mm-hmm. This is it. This is your opportunity. If there's anything that you want to rely on, this is the time. And obviously... You know, the time really for him to come out, if any, if there were any truth in that story, the time for him to come out with it was when Jenna Stack put her head through the bushes. He didn't come out with it then, but even six, seven days later, when he's given every opportunity in the Garda station, he still didn't reveal that story. And it took him, whatever, 20 months to actually come up with it. So a jury, I think, at that stage is perfectly entitled to say this is nonsense mm-hmm. and we're going to convict this guy. And as Amory Lawler would say, you know, he fled the scene after the murder and she put it in, you know, in quite stark uh, language. You know, he would uh, he hid through briars, uh, hid for a number of hours, four and a half. He later arranged for his clothes to be burnt. Um, and she said that he then retrofished this ludicrous story. And of course, as you've heard, Owen describing there his version of events. But he then claimed, um, said the reason he told Gardy while he was in hospital that he had been the victim of a stabbing in Blanchardstown is because he was worried about his family and what they would do. So at one point, there was almost so many different lies going on. Um, it, it was hard to get a, a direct, actually a clear picture of what his what his defence was. But yeah, it was just, I mean, I, I think, yeah, the jury obviously mm. saw through absolutely what was referred to as cock and bull. I have a question for either of you, actually. Mm. His story about Blanchardstown, mm-hmm. why? That didn't make any sense. Like he clearly hadn't made up this cock and bull story, as Anne Marie Lawler put it, um, when he was in his um, um, his parents' home in in Crumlin when the Gardaí came in. That was the first mention of this attack in Blanchardstown. As it turns out, there had actually been mm. a stabbing incident in Blanchardstown on the same day that Ashley Murphy was killed. Now, whether Joseph Pushka was aware of that or not, mm. I don't know. Maybe again, there he was retrofitting a story. But the fact that he then had to go later on, no, do you know what? I was lying about that, but I definitely wasn't lying about the COVID compliant killer who stabbed me three times in the stomach down by the canal. I mean, I think it's very obvious what happened to Josef Pushka because he's seen very clearly on CCTV footage moving freely and going into that apartment um, the night that he fled um, Tullamore and and Mukla, his home in Mukla, um, moving freely, looking totally pain-free and then he leaves in an ambulance the following morning. I, You know, you join the dots. I mean, Anne-Marie Lawler said it herself. She put it to him that he stabbed himself. He clearly denied it, but I think it's fair to say that the jury took a certain view of that. Yeah. But even even on that, so the, the implication being that he invented this story about being stabbed in Blanchardstown because he wanted to create an alibi for himself. Mm-hmm. But what occurs to me is, you know, if you want to create an alibi and you're just going to completely make something up, you don't have to have been stabbed. You can just say, I was in Blanchardstown without putting yourself in the middle of what is actually a pretty big Garda investigation into a stabbing there where the Garda are going to have details about where it happened, when it's, it happened. It's the most ironic part really of the of his entire yeah. case is that by trying to create an alibi, what he effectively did was he brought the guards to his to door. His door. Mm. Yeah. That's what he did. Yeah. He, he brought the suspicion on himself. And of course, merely a day after bringing that suspicion on himself, he then confesses yeah. to murder. And I mean, the defence would later obviously raise issues with this confession. And we heard, you know, 
uh, all the different arguments about the medication, as Frank um, described earlier, the medication he'd been taking and the un- environment he was in, an un- unfamiliar environment in hospital. But, you know, you don't just accidentally confess to murder and also in that confession, you know, give a, a detail of of what you've done, news that wasn't actually, you know, detail that wasn't, um, you know, Public. Public at that time. And the guards, you know, testified to this, that it had not come out in the media and people were not aware exactly of how Ashley Murphy died. And that's a really important reason why in a lot of these investigations, Gardy will not uh, release details of a post-mortem for, you know, they always say for operational reasons. He had that detail. And he couldn't later then say, you know, this wasn't something that would have just magically come to him as a result of taking a particular medication. You know, he didn't suddenly get these psychic Mm -hmm. abilities. So between that, um, between his story about the Blanchardstown stabbing, which he obviously would later retract in court, there was just there was a lot of elements of this case. Uh, He certainly put up a defence, but you you can't say it was the best one. He told a lot of lies. And I think at the end of the day, they were quite easily unravelled. Um, you know, a lot of them just didn't make any sense. And he did have a lie for everything. You know, he was manipulative in that sense, but his lies were just easily unraveled, I I feel. And I think the guards actually deserve a huge credit because you had this um, situation where a patient um, is admitted to St. James's Hospital in Dublin, um, um, complaining of having been the victim of a knife attack, parent stab wounds and all the rest of it, the Garthi and Blanchestown are sent to investigate. And it was on the back of that. So you had Gartha Paul MacDonald and Gartha Connor Newman, if memory serves me correct, from Blanchestown Garda Station that went to visit him. They were investigating this stabbing in Blanchestown and they saw the scratches on his hands. And I think it was Gartha MacDonald who had um, the foresight to say, you know, they were unusual and there were a lot of scratches on his hands and the jurors were shown those photographs. He took a photograph himself of them. So they would have been fresh. They went back to base then. They spoke to their superior detective inspector, uh, Shane McCartan. And it was him then that clocked the Tullamore reference mm-hmm. because Yosef Pushka had told the Gardaí who were investigating a separate incident altogether that he had come up from Tullamore that day. And obviously this was the day after he had murdered Ashling. And Detective Inspector McCartan then made contact with the incident room in Tullamore. Detective Gartha David Scahill was the end of the, on the end of the phone when he called. And that set in train everything else that followed I'm not saying that they wouldn't have caught a Yosef Pushka. There was obviously an awful lot of resources going into it, a huge manhunt underway. I've no doubt they would have caught him. But this just sped up the process because that very evening then you had Detective Sergeant Brian Jennings and Detective Gartha Fergus Hogan going up. They'd ultimately speak to Yosef Pushka and he would go on to make that crucial admission in the hospital. And that ultimately is where we end up then last week or the, was it 10 days ago with him on the stand um, fabricating the story that we now know to be, well, we think the jury accepted to be fabricated. Mm-hmm. But um, before we move on to, to Pushka in the stand, because that really, is, I think I was fascinated, um, like I said earlier, that, that he was even going to take the stand. The one thing that I've been asked a few times over the last four weeks, there's been no mention of the weapon. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. In what we talked about, and for any of my knowledge of the case before we had it confirmed on the opening day of the trial that Ashling had been stabbed, was there any mention of a weapon during the trial? And if not, why not? As in, if there wasn't a weapon, it wasn't said, we don't have a weapon, but. And is that a tactical move or why was there no mention of a weapon? 
There was no mention of a weapon because as far as I can tell, they didn't find one. Mm. Um, and and also, I mean, I know this might seem obvious, but a weapon is helpful in the sense that it can be a key piece of evidence for lots of reasons, DNA and, and, and whatnot. But look at all the other evidence that they had. I mean, it would have been the icing on the cake had they found it. But as far as I can tell, certainly it wasn't put to the jury. This is this was the murder weapon because they certainly would have been shown that and told all about it. The one the one reference that I do remember being made about it was in the pre-trial hearing. There was an issue about one of the clips, and this was a clip I think after Josef Pushka had given up on his pursuit of Beata Baraska. She got into Tesco and he did a U-turn and went back towards the town. And he had stopped at one point, and the guardy and it was um he was in the distance in this particular um, footage in this particular clip and Garda Shane Harney having watched this clip 30 or 40 times he said was of the impression that he takes something out of his pocket he was looking in his pockets for something he takes that out of his pocket and he holds it close to his chest the implication being that this was the murder weapon that this was the knife and there was a lot of legal argument um, around that around the narrative around that um, in the end that clip did go to the jury but as far as I know um, there was no mention certainly wasn't any mention of, okay. of, of a weapon And the only other mention that. of a weapon would have been in his in his confession to Detective Gartha Fergus Hogan mm. and that would have yeah. been while he was in hospital so that was after he had been speaking to Sergeant Brian Jennings yeah. and said I did it I am the murderer when Sergeant Jennings left the room and when Detective Gartha Hogan went back in that's when he gave the description of how he had carried it out um, and he, he told the detective that he had cut Ashleen's neck and he also uh, referred to the fact that he used a knife uh, that he used for his bike. So that was the only other mm-hmm. reference I think that we heard in relation to it. Yeah, he said that <clears throat> he said he had a knife that he uses for the chain of his bike. Yeah. But on that CCTV evidence that Gerda Harney um, went through with the jury, he did point out, from my recollection, he did point out that you can see Joseph Puska removing something from his pocket mm-hmm. and holding it in front of him and then returning it to his pocket. He didn't say what he what it was, yeah. but I think the implication yeah. should have been pretty obvious that he was yeah. saying this was the murder weapon. Yeah. And then the only other reference, I think, to a weapon is that the pathologist obviously said that this was a bladed, uh, you know, yeah. it was a blade and she described what sort of shape and size the blade could have been. When when she was asked what could have caused it, she I think her I think her response was a knife or knives or some other sharp instrument. And the wounds that that um, were inflicted on on Ashley were described as sharp um, sharp force injuries. sharp force injuries. Yeah. Let's uh, turn to Pushka on the stand. How common is this, Frank? It's it's not that common that an accused person in a murder trial will take the stand in. Uh, their defence um, and and obviously we've spoken about the legal principles uh, that the judge would have gone through in great detail with the jury. The reason for that is I suppose they don't have to. Um, you know, they're under no obligation to do so. They don't have to put up a defence. Michael Bowman wouldn't have even had to cross-examine witnesses. The The case and the allegation was entirely up for, up to the other side to, to prove beyond that very high standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. We were not sure as the case came towards the end, as the prosecution was preparing to rest her case. We were not sure right up until the very last minute whether or not Josef Pushka was going to take the stand. 
but you got the impression that he kind of had to because of that instruction, because of what um, Michael Bowman had put to Jenna Stack when he introduced this um, potential Good Samaritan explanation as to why and what he was doing in the hedgerow that day. Because the judge had made it very clear in the absence of of the jury that the jury would not be allowed to rely on that as evidence uh, as such unless and he didn't say this verbatim, but the implication was unless Josef Pushka got up into the stand and said that himself. So at the very last minute, he did decide um, to do that. And I suppose another reason that an accused person generally doesn't get into um, the witness box is because by doing so, by allowing themselves the opportunity to give the jury their version of events, they're also opening up an opportunity for somebody like Anne-Marie Lawler as a prosecuting barrister to cross-examine and her cross-examination of him was brilliant. It could have gone on for days on end but I thought that she made a very clever decision to end it because the longer it went on the more lies he was spewing from the witness box the more opportunities he got to defend his case and to make that ludicrous claim that he was trying to help Ashley that day. She exposed him as a liar. She put it to him. He accepted telling a number of lies. And that's all she really needed to do. She needed to like, she needed the jury to see this man lying. And he did accept on a number right. of occasions that he'd lied during the investigation. Deborah, what did you think of him in the stand, watching him, his demeanour, how he delivered this story that he had concocted? I think it was perhaps a little bit more difficult than some other witnesses in the stand and that may be due in part to the language barrier. Um, He's obviously, he was speaking through an interpreter. So there was that slight delay during the evidence. So you can't really get a sense of someone's tone of voice or how how they're actually speaking. Um, You know, you can hear the translated version of what they're saying. I think that is a little bit different. But I think in terms of the content of what he was saying, I mean, that was very clear. Um, and, and as Frank was saying, especially when we went to cross-examination, I mean, you know, it, it was just so clear. He was just telling, um, you know, lie after lie. Mm. And it really did not feel like in any way convincing. And it almost at one point just felt really galling to have to listen to this because you're kind of thinking, you know, that there was just no way any of this was truthful. But I, I think in terms of it, his character throughout the trial, um and that again, perhaps you could see that a little bit when he took the stand. Um, you know, he he didn't for most of the trial. To me, he didn't appear to someone to be someone who was like overly perturbed by being there. Mm. At times, he almost seemed like he he was a little bored. Um, yeah, it was a very strange demeanor to kind of see someone who is, you know, sitting there accused of the most serious charge you can be accused of. Um, and that's the way I felt he kind of presented himself. Mm. Uh, for quite you and I were sitting. Time. You and I were sitting closest to the dock, so we had a very good eye. Um, I think Owen, you were usually had based yourself a little bit over the other side towards the jury, um, and Anne Marie Lawler's side of the house. But like looking at him day to day, um, he just seemed so relaxed. That's what I noticed. He was smirking. He was smiling. Uh, sometimes smirking trying, and smiling. Yeah, absolutely. During certain parts of, of the trial. Yeah, 100 percent. No doubt about it. Uh, trying to engage or... with the interpreter from time to time who was there just to translate what was being said uh, in court. Um, looking back to his family members who were there, you know, smiling, having consultations with lawyers, all of those things. He seemed to me like a person who was pretty confident that they weren't going to be convicted. And, and there was definitely a shift when he did learn his fate 
uh, yesterday because I think he was I think he was surprised. I think he was somewhat shocked by it. I think he was pretty confident that he was going to get away with murder. Uh, on that, with his demeanour and his giggling and laughing, he actually, at the end of the pathology evidence, which of course is always some of the most harrowing evidence mm-hmm. you can have, as the pathologist was finishing her evidence, I do remember very distinctly that he was laughing and smiling at that point. And I, I think members of Ashley Murphy's family noticed that too. And that was, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, look, he's done more unforgivable things but than that. It's disgusting. But, it, it, yeah. but do you know what? It's, it's adding insult to injury. And, yeah. and I felt that's, 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 the, that's the same thing when he gave his evidence. You know, what he did was barbaric. It was horrible. He took Ashling from her family in the cruelest and the most violent of ways. And then he gets into a witness box and he spouts out all of these lies mm-hmm. and he tells her family that he was trying to save her life. I just thought that was remarkable. Like what this man would have done to get off. It was very difficult for the family to hear, um, you know, like, the, the trial itself, the pathology evidence, as as you say, it is for me the hardest part for the families because it's so cold, it's so clinical, and it's so so graphic. And to to think that Josef Pushka is, is laughing at the end of that is just so disrespectful. Her family, I can't imagine what it was like for them, but I understand in a courtroom, are they supposed to try and restrain themselves from mm. reaction, from emotion, from all yeah. of that? And there was I uh, there was re- one moment in the trial which mm. I thought was it was actually it was the end of the very end of the prosecution case or towards the end I think it might have been the last witness and there was um, a guard who was basically giving um, a, a PowerPoint presentation and he had effectively put together a map and dropped onto the map at different points um, you know it was showing the locations um, in Tullamore but he was also matching them up to CCTV images mm-hmm. um, and it showed. Um, the CCTV, which we had seen earlier in the trial, but it was a still picture of the last um, image of Ashleen along the canal. You could see her bobble hat walking along, um, which would have been at five to three on the afternoon of January 12th. So that would have been around 35 minutes before she was murdered. And it was just it was, it was one still picture, but her mother just broke down. And it was just really poignant because once the jury um, left the room, um the judge had to say to the family, well, he said to the court, you know, um, that he was aware that, you know, on on their part, it would take, you know, it was an absolute superhuman strength to try and keep it together. And he was fully aware of all of the circumstances around this case. And I think his comments yesterday really did reflect that. Mm -hmm. Um, He understood that emotion. He understood how barbaric this was and how incredibly difficult it was for the family. But that is what they have to do because his job was to make sure that Josef Pushka got a fair trial and that nothing interfered with that trial process. Um, and of course, you know, any any argument that there may be any kind of sympathy being elicited in the courtroom could not be, you know, that could not become part of the case. And that idea of leaving sympathies aside was so important. But that was just, yeah, it was, it was quite a, a poignant day. And I think maybe the family were just... Ashley's mother, Kathleen, was just caught off guard and was just seeing that image again. And all you could think by looking at it was like that was half an hour before she she was killed and she had no idea. Mm -hmm. She was just going about her day doing something that was so normal, finishing work, going out for some exercise. Superhuman is the word for it. I don't know how. I, I think her family are, they deserve so much recognition for 
what they've gone through. Mm. Oh my uh, God, what yeah. they've gone and, through. And even after he made that comment, and it's 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 absolutely not the case that Mr. Justice Hunt is just heartless. No. I mean, he just no. understood that there is the potential. Why he didn't say this? You know, there is the potential that when you have, um, you know, clearly a family still obviously grieving. It's all still very raw for them, and when they have those moments that catch them off guard and they can be upsetting, mm. that that upset, that visible upset, might have an influence on on the jury, and you could have the other side arguing that that's not fair and I noticed then at certain points certain difficult points look they were all very difficult points but there were certain points after that moment where the parents actually removed themselves from the courtroom and whether they went okay. to the over room court yeah. or back to the victim support room or whatever followed it from from afar because they didn't want to do anything to jeopardise mm-hmm. yeah. the case and, and I thought that you talk about superhuman strength that alone takes superhuman yeah. strength yeah Nobody, and us included, nobody wanted to do anything that would no. put a question mark over the validity of this trial at any point. So, a I, I, I fair play to them even at that to recognise. Okay, and even we have like to you know, like listening to this podcast um, day to day, and yeah. you know, Yosef Pushka takes the stand, and and you and I are all we can do, and same with the guys and their reports to the case. Like it's just that fair, balanced completely impartial account when at times I had to catch myself as I was taking a note tapping, tapping, tapping on my laptop as Yosef Pushka was spitting out these lies and I was shaking my head and I I just couldn't believe what I was hearing but you have to you have to keep that in because juries are very observant they have the best seat in the house when it comes to watching people's demeanour and they take all of that in Of course, yeah, okay The closing speeches I wanted to ask you both about. Thoughts on both the prosecution and the defence. I might start with you, Owen. Um, Anne-Marie Lawler's closing speech to the jury. I think I remember, was it about 40-odd minutes? And what did you make of it? It was about 40 minutes, yeah. She started at 10.42. She finished uh, just after 20 past 11. And that's quite a short closing speech. It's Mm -hmm. one of the shorter you'll ever get and I think there's a very good reason for that because as she said, the evidence is overwhelming. You've just heard a ludicrous cock and bull story from a man who's clearly lying. Um, You don't really need to insult a jury's intelligence, I suppose, is the way that she felt about it by going into the minutiae and trying to overturn his lies. The jury heard what he said and, they, you know, we've gone through the story that he gave and the opportunities he was given prior to that to tell his story and all the other evidence that places him at the scene. So um, her her closing speech, as it would always be with Anne-Marie Lawler, she's incredibly professional, um, very good barrister, one of the best barristers in the country. And um, it was an excellent closing speech, But and she was, I think, very wise to keep it short mm. okay. and to keep it sweet and to just simply point out how ludicrous this defence was. Um, and how the evidence just completely annihilated that story that he had told. Mm. She simply just let the facts speak for themselves. Yeah. And that's what she did. And she kept it short and concise and yeah, some, summed up the case in, in the briefest way that she only needed to do. And she didn't need to do anything more. Um, as Owen said, she wasn't going to insult the jury's intelligence. She could tell they had, you know, they had watched, followed this trial, followed the evidence very closely um, for the whole way through. And... Um, obviously, the the defence had a slightly. I wanted to ask. So Michael Bowman's um, his approach needed to be very different, and his was much longer. It was, and he is also one of the best barristers, <laughs> the most experienced experienced criminal practitioners in the country. Um, I think he was obviously trying to work with 
um, you know, what he had, the case he had in front of him. Uh, one of the things he did do was warn the jury um, about why people tell lies. Um, and he said, you know, lies have to be dealt with very um, carefully and lies on their own, you know, cannot be indicative of guilt. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we heard, um, you know, that issue of of lies um, Mr. Justice Hunt later referred to further in his charge. Uh, he also questioned, you know, whether or not uh, the, the confession, whether or not his client was ever fit to speak to um, guards in the first place. And this whole issue about whether this confession, um, you know, whether it was it was Yosef uh, Pushka being interviewed or whether he came forward with this. It was, of course, it was an issue throughout the trial. And he kind of said, you know, was his, he alluded to the fact, he questioned whether his client was confused on that night. And he, he, he was trying to work with what he had and I suppose raise as much doubt as he could about the prosecution case and saying it wasn't as clear as was presented to them. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the judge said yesterday um, after the jury returned its verdict, he said he had no, you know, he took no issue um, with the, the way the defence barristers ran their case. But, you know, I think he, how we refer to it, he said it, it was a threadbare one. Yeah. How much of an influence, Frank, do closing speeches have? You know, this is the last thing bar the judge's charge that the jury hears. It's their last chance to hear both sides of the argument and it's kind of unopposed. It's mm. like the like the opening statement, the closing speeches are unopposed. How important and influential are they? Um, well, they're not supposed to be influential at all because okay. um, juries are told that they're not evidence. So by the time closing speeches come around, um, they've heard all of the evidence and the closing speeches are just an opportunity for, as the guys have said, for both sides to, I suppose, give their final pitches to the jury and to address the the evidence in ways that they, they couldn't do in, in such um, a, a wholesome way throughout. Mm-hmm. They test the evidence, obviously, through cross-examination and whatnot, but this is their first opportunity to say, this is what we think of all of the evidence. And... Um, Closing speeches to me, I mean, when I say that they are um, not supposed to be influential because jurors are told they're not evidence, I mean, why do we have them yeah, then? Do you know, so <laughs> I mean, they, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure they do feature in the in the um, jury room during deliberations. And with that in mind, like you know, you have to ask yourself: Is it better to go first or have the last word? Um, so, as is the case with any other trial, like Ms. Lawler would have gone first. And what that does then is it gives Michael Bowman an opportunity to counter some points that she makes where, you know, once Michael Bowman has delivered his speech and we get into judge's charge, she doesn't get another opportunity mm. to go back. So the great skill from a prosecutor's point of view and, and Anne-Marie Lawler is, is brilliant at this is preempting what the other side is going to say in their closing speech. And she did that with great effect. And I, I totally agree with the guys as well. I think it was intentional on her part to keep it short and sweet because... At one point, she said um, that there was so much compelling evidence in the case that she was afraid that she was going to leave something out. That was a little line thrown in there. And I just thought that was brilliant because that just creates something in the minds of of the jurors that she potentially didn't even have to create. Because as soon as they went back to their jury room, the room was falling down with the evidence stacked against uh, Mr. Pushka. Mm -hmm. And I think that's reflected in the duration of jury deliberations, two hours in my experience when it comes to a murder trial that's been going on for weeks on end, that's very short. And the guys had a lunch break before they made their deliberations. So you could probably argue the case that they, their minds made up well before they went on that yeah. break. Yeah. 
we know the result. Guilty verdict. The sentence hearing happens next week then. Are we expecting victim impact statements? What's going to happen, I suppose, is my question on Friday the 17th. Um, when, it, when it comes to sentencing, um, the judge has absolutely no discretion when it comes to a murder conviction. So Josef Pushka will be handed down the mandatory life sentence for what he did. I suppose the reason it has been kicked back for a week because he obviously could have done that very easily and very quickly yesterday. Mm. The reason it's been put back for a week is to give the family time to consider whether or not they want to make victim impact statements. They're under absolutely um, no obligation to do so. I think they will. I think they'll want to tell the judge how they've been affected by what Josef Pushka did. And that's Mm. the whole point of a victim impact statement. And the judge also said yesterday um, that he hoped too that they would make those victim impact statements because, as we spoke about on uh, yesterday's episode, you know, trials when it comes to victims um, are often very one dimensional that, you know, a jury is only concerned with how a person died and who was responsible. And hopefully through the victim impact statements, that would be an opportunity for Ashling's family to give the court, the judge, the country the world because there was an awful lot of international attention on this story to give them a a 3D picture of Ashley Murphy. She was just 23 years of age but my God she had achieved so much in so little years. She had so much more living to do. Her family have been devastated by what's happened to her. She has been taken from this world, stolen, I think was how her boyfriend Ryan put it yesterday on the outside, outside the courthouse, stolen from them by a monster, a complete stranger And up until this point, everything has been focused on that stranger, on that monster in the dock. He's now been convicted and thankfully the focus will shift um, next Friday when the family are given that opportunity to tell the world about Ashling, who she was, who she should have been allowed to become. Mm. And also they'll be given an opportunity to tell the judge how they've been affected by what he did. And, And that might, you know... When it comes to mandatory life sentence, the punishment is still the same. So you may be wondering, like, what's the point of all that? Aside from obviously the being able to make those lovely tributes, well, there is a point when it comes down the road to a parole board, and they'll be able to take mm. take their voices into account too. When, if the day comes, somebody is considering Mr. Pushka's release. Okay. So that's the final step still to happen uh, next Friday. But if you don't mind, I'd like to ask each of you about your own experiences of being sitting throughout this trial. Hands up, this is my first time being this close to a trial. But I found it yesterday, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It really did yesterday afternoon. Um, But I just wonder how it is for you three to sit through trials like this. And I might ask you, Deborah, to start off. How did you find sitting through this trial in particular? You've covered plenty of them, but was there anything that made this one different, harder? Yeah, I mean... I'm always kind of loath to almost say one trial is more difficult than another for fear of of saying that you're almost placing the importance of one victim over another. But I have to say, uh, yeah, given the trials I've covered to date, I, I, I definitely found um, this one uh, particularly difficult um, for reasons I've kind of outlined, the, you know, just the the random nature of the attack, the evidence that we had to listen to, the fact that there was no motive um, the little bit that we know about Ashley that we heard at the very beginning. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's part of our jobs. As Frank said earlier, you have to be absolutely, you know, you have to be impartial and you're concerned throughout a trial and 
particularly one that attracts so much media attention is you're just so focused on making sure that you report on it accurately every day because there is there are you know there are no room for errors to be made because the consequences of that can be so serious um but that is not to say that you know um, we're without heart either. And, and you know, I just found that, like, my heart absolutely went out to the family, you know, nearly every single day I, I saw them in court and that I listened to the evidence. Um, and, and just hearing her boyfriend, you know, speak about Ashleen yesterday, I just thought the way he described her was just, you know, it was just, it was beautiful, but it was also just, like, gut-wrenching because you're just left with this thought being like, what was the point of this? And it just was such a pointless attack and taking the life of such a beautiful young person who had so much to give to, to everyone in her family and her community mm-hmm. and was just loved by so many people that, yeah, it just, it leaves you with this real, like, this was just... Um, yeah, it was just so unbelievably senseless. So I have to say, yeah, you know, there have been many, you know, many difficult trials and maybe one, we all remember the Anna Creagel trial because that was such a, you know, a, a violent death of a young, you know, a teenager, a young girl. Um, but this one will, you know, certainly, I think, probably stay with with us quite mm. a long time. Owen. Well, I definitely can't add very much to what Deborah said there because she summed it up very nicely. But I mean, I'm always aware that going into these trials, um, I am an observer and that's my job is simply to be an observer. I'm not involved. And um, there are people in that room who are very directly involved and who are very directly affected by everything that's happening in there. And I do see take that quite seriously that my job is to be distanced from that. So that is the way I approach approach every trial. And then obviously there are cases where you do feel that little bit more empathy or sympathy because you see the people grieving. And we definitely saw a family every day in there together and very much together and very supportive of one another, but also grieving and, you know, finding these things very difficult. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, every, every trial is extremely sad um, and watching families in those situations is very it, it can be quite hard to do mm. and I, I would just endorse what everything that Deborah mm. said mm. Frank I would like to finish this podcast by placing our emphasis back where I think we both and all of us in the room here feel it should be which is back to Ashling. Mm-hmm. what do you think her legacy will be on the back of all of this I think and I hope that there will be some changes to the law first and foremost because you know we've 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 worked on the whole topic and we've been banging the drums for years about mandatory life sentences yeah. okay because life doesn't really mean life in this country and i do really feel that there are some cases that warrant a whole life tariff being placed on a sentence and i think this is one of them um over in other jurisdictions like the USA and and um over in the UK you know, they do things a little bit different and I'm not saying that they get it right either, but I just think that there can't be a one size fits all. Um, you know, Deborah made a very go- good point and I'm loath to compare uh, murder cases because, you know, there isn't a hierarchy when it comes to uh, victims, but there is when it comes to crimes and the way that they are um, committed. And that's the same with any other crime apart from murder in this country where the punishment is the same regardless. The average sentence that a lifer will spend behind bars in Ireland is about 20 years. Yosef Pushka will come before a parole board in 12 years' time. 
Now, that's not to say that he'd be released in 12 years. In, in fact, the, the research and the data would suggest that he won't be. But what will happen in 12 years time is that it will bring back all of this trauma for Ashley Murphy's family. They will be re-traumatised by that and every other period thereafter where he comes before a parole board. If at the very least a minimum tariff could be put on that sentence to say Yosef Pushka cannot be eligible for parole for 30 years. You know, that would be 30 years of peace for the family. They'll never forget Ashling. Absolutely not. She will live for, forever in their hearts and in their minds. But that would give them some peace of mind that the person responsible, the stranger, the monster who took her life that cold January afternoon won't be walking the streets anytime soon. So when you talk about legacies like, you know, wouldn't that be a brilliant legacy? You know, or... You know, a lot of conversations about femicide, really important conversations about femicide happened in the aftermath of what happened to Ashley Murphy. I think it's 18 women have been killed since Ashley was murdered. So things haven't changed necessarily. Women are still being killed for lots of reasons. It started a national conversation, but actions speak so much louder than words. Ashley was just 23 years of age, but, and I, 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 look, I didn't know her. I'm not claiming that I knew her. I, ne- I never <coughs> met her. But looking at her family, you can, you can see what a special part she was of that unit and of her community. You know, she encompassed and encapsulated everything that is wonderful about this country. Her love of traditional music. Um, the fact that she loved teaching kids. She passed on her skills as a fiddle player. She played camogie and... You talk about standout moments in the trial. One thing that I thought was particularly poignant was we heard all about, you know, her love of GAA, her love of her local camogie club, um, Kilcormac, Kalahi, and how she was out wearing her GAA top that day when she was exercising. And then it was pulled out of an evidence bag and you've shown to a jury at Yosef Pushka's murder trial, crumpled up, covered in mud, bloodstained. I found that and I can, I can only imagine what that was like for the family but I thought that that was a particularly poignant moment in the trial. So senseless, so needless. You'd love to think that some good can come out of it and if, if it's to start a conversation, great. But I think really, really need to see some action because we're, we're never going to live in a society where femicide doesn't exist but perhaps if it was an aggravating factor or something like that when it comes to sentencing and that somebody would get that additional punishment, something, that it would give people some pause for thought. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you all very much for coming in today and helping us with this episode of the podcast. I think it's been really worthwhile. Deborah Naylor and Owen Reynolds, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for episode 19 of All Rise, the Ashling Murphy murder trial. We are going to take a break now, but we will be back next week for that final stage of the trial process, Yosef Pushka's sentence hearing. I'm Frank Graney, Courts Correspondent for News Talk. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and make sure you follow us. All Rise, the Ashling Murphy murder trial. We'll speak to you very soon. All Rise, the Ashling Murphy murder trial was hosted by Frank Graney and Ashling Moore with sound design by Lachlan Hart. Follow the podcast on Newstalk.com, on the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, or wherever you get your podcasts.